0: Welcome to Pushback. I'm Aaron Maté. Joining me is Richard Sakwa. He is professor of Russian and European politics at the University of Kent. His books include Frontline Ukraine, Crisis in the Borderlands, and his latest, Just Out, Deception, Russia Gate and the New Cold War. Richard Sakwa, thank you for joining me. My pleasure. I want to start with Ukraine and Russia. As we are speaking, there have just been talks between Russian Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov and U.S. Secretary of State Anthony Blinken, they ended pretty quickly. Now there is talk of a summit between Biden and Putin virtually. If you could set the conflict right now in Ukraine in context, how did we get to this current moment?
1: Yeah, this is the second time this year that we've seen – Uh, a war threat uh, uh, emerging uh, with uh, Russian troop movements, Ukrainian troop movements and so on. The immediate issue clearly is concern on both sides that there's going to be a forcible attempt to resolve the Donbass question, uh, that is the secessionist uh, republics uh, in that part of Ukraine. But the larger context is like a uh, a Russian doll, a Matryoshka doll uh, in which that conflict is nested in the larger one, which uh, in the immediate uh, context Next is the model of Ukrainian state building since 1991, uh, where a certain Russophone population was uh, objecting um, to a particular vision of Ukrainian statehood. Uh, a lot of authors who have pointed this out over the years, and it came to a crunch in 2014, uh, and so uh, then we had the counter movement uh, Crimea and Donbas. But the, even bigger than that is the failure since 1991 to establish uh, what the Russians would certainly call an inclusive and equitable security order. And that, of course, is what was uh, um, being discussed at the OSCE security conference uh, just these last few days where Blinken uh, and Sergei Lavrov, the Russian foreign minister, met.
0: So let me put you the conventional narrative that we get here in the U.S. I want to read you a couple of quotes. So one of them is from um a new op-ed in The Washington Post from Michael Michael McFall, the former U.S. ambassador to Russia, and Alexei Honcharuk, a former Ukrainian prime minister under the current Ukrainian president Zelensky. They write this, Since 1939, the specter of an all-out conventional war in Europe between two major militaries, has never been greater. Would you agree with that?
1: I would. Uh, Even though I don't agree how they got to that point in the argument, the actual substance is that I actually do think Mm. that we are closer to war. Well, certainly, I don't know about 1939, but since 1945, in terms of a Cold War, I argue that indeed we are in a second Cold War, accompanied by propaganda, disinformation, the demonization of the opponent. Plus, of course, the militarization of Europe. We have a new Iron Curtain, now no longer from Stettin in the north to in the south, but from uh, all the way down to Mariupol uh, in Ukraine. So, yes, we do. We are closer. And the language and the vitriol and the distrust, there's just no substantive basis uh, for um, the the powers, um, Russia, the United States and its European allies to move beyond this impasse. And so, and of course, then we have a volatile situation, a front line in Ukraine, which uh could explode at any moment because, you know, domestic politics, as always, even the first Cold War, uh, often the tail wags the dog. Neither Russia nor the United States, of course, want conflict. But... And of course, uh, but these things happen, we saw the um, sleepwalking into 1914, and we have military exercises, we have uh, US planes, I mean, I think that this one study showed that nearly 2000 near military misses took place, have taken place since 2014. One day, planes will collide, ships will collide, something will happen, and we're off.
0: So you agree with the conclusion of ambassador mcfall that we're closer to war than at any point since 1939 let's talk about the differing perspectives as you mentioned on why that is they say this quote putin clearly does not want a stable and predictable relationship with biden he considers the u.s to be russia's greatest enemy in his view the biden administration seeks to weaken russia and overthrow his regime with such a country as putin sees it there can never be stable predictable cooperation only perpetual conflict.
1: Yeah, I think it's quite the opposite. Um uh, the uh, the idea that um Putin as uh, a an article in the New Statesman this week's issue puts it the agent of chaos and uh, the fermenter of instability uh, is the uh, complete mistake. It's in fact the opposite. Russia constantly wants stability. It wants a framework for order. Uh, and more than that, uh, it um is committed still to that international system and the international law established after 1945, that is the United Nations system uh, and the system of international law, which uh, has emerged on its basis. So, and it's in a sense, they would argue, certainly the Russians would argue, that it's the West that has become revisionist. It's the West that wants to uh, destabilize the order by advancing a military alliance almost to Russia's borders. Uh, So, uh, uh, and also the idea that Putin needs some sort of external adventure in order to consolidate his position at home is also mistaken. I think that the, there's a whole stack of arguments uh, uh, involved here, including, of course, the view that uh, what's going on in Ukraine is a, is a Russian invasion or a Russian attack when uh, the refusal to accept there's the internal domestic you know let's not perhaps call it a civil war but civil contestation about the vision of ukrainian statehood is homemade uh, and so what we see in this uh, second cold war is the constant projection of internal contradictions in ukraine and indeed in the west the atlantic power system uh, onto russia which leads to a very mistaken view of the dynamics and motivations of the uh, Russian leadership today, uh, which leads, of course, to mistaken policies, which leads then to uh, the intensification of the conflict and leads us to the danger of an inadvertent war. Uh, This is why the context is just so important. McFaul is, of course, one of the leaders, um, uh, leading figures who insist that uh, the domestic politics, the type of regime affects and absolutely shapes foreign policy. Um, I think that could be contested. Any basic realist views would suggest that Russian has national interest. It has concerns and any power in Moscow would be concerned about a military alliance coming up to its borders. Even if NATO doesn't expand, as Putin has been saying over the last few months, uh, Ukraine de facto is being armed uh, with very offensive weapons the javelin and other things which of course even uh, barack obama refused to give because he warned that this would only intensify and exacerbate the conflict
0: right and when trump briefly paused those weapon sales he was impeached though the accompanying allegation was that he was doing so for political gain but when Trump paused those weapons. This was seen as a mortal threat, not just to Ukraine, but to the United States. And actually, let me quote you someone who was a key figure in that. William Taylor was the former U.S. ambassador in Ukraine. And during the impeachment of Trump, he was presented in the U.S. as a big hero. And he was very outspoken in basically saying that any peace with Russia and Ukraine is essentially appeasement. And he recently in The Washington Post, I think, bragged about um spoiling the Prospects of Peace in Ukraine. This is uh, this is what he told the Washington Post. He said, Putin actually has a malign attitude towards the United States. He wants to stick it to America in whatever ways he can. And then the Post, this is David Ignatius of the Washington Post, goes on to write, Taylor recalls the warning he gave to President Zelensky after he became Ukraine's president in 2019 and was eager to negotiate a deal with Putin. And Taylor says this, quote, don't get sucked in. So it looks like Taylor here is telling Zelensky that to make a peace deal with Russia over Ukraine would be to get sucked in. And my question to you is, what is the U.S. goal here? Do they actually want to bring Ukraine into NATO?
1: Well, obviously, uh, we know that since the Bucharest summit uh, in April 2008, that has been promised as well as to Georgia. So quite clearly, uh, the U.S. policy uh, politicians do want this. Uh, We remember that that though, of course, was paused under Obama uh, when NATO was taken off the uh, table as an immediate agenda item. But of course, and it's obviously not on the table even now. But what we see is a sort of creeping NATOization of Ukraine with endless uh, guarantees. As for the impeachment hearings, uh, it wasn't just Taylor, it was Windman and almost all of them. If you read it, it's absolutely frightening with the, the idea, as I think Adam Schiff and others were arguing that basically, uh, the front line, the defense of Washington begins on the Dnieper. Uh, it's absolutely extraordinary, extravagant language, irresponsible language, and of course, meaningless because it's ultimately, if push came to shove, then Quite clearly, as Obama kept saying, uh, Russia has escalation dominance. If it came to a military conflict, Russia can mobilize far more forces in that locality than the United States, several thousand kilometers away. A would be disastrous, of course, for all concerned. So that language and the atmosphere, the hothouse atmosphere in Washington and in those impeachment hearings in particular uh, is quite extraordinary because Ultimately, the question is, what is the US strategic goal? It should be peace. It should be some sort of uh, framework in which Russia is part of the solution instead of which being constantly externalized as an enemy. So it, this is absolutely dangerous talk. I mean, there's a marvellous book, which I'm sure you know, William Hill, called No Place for Russia, which describes how since 1991. Desperate attempts by Yeltsin and then Putin to establish a an inclusive security order, and indeed Medvedev with his ideas in 2008. So the idea is that you can't negotiate with Moscow because it doesn't want to deal, or that any negotiation effectively is appeasement. is sort of crazy talk. That means there can be no diplomacy. There can be no engagement, no dialogue, uh, no working on common issues, though Biden, of course, after the Geneva summit, has established a working party on cyber uh, issues and on strategic security, which uh, is very welcome. And so there is talk going on, but in an atmosphere of fundamental distrust.
0: A lot of people in the U.S. on the liberal progressive side were so excited that Trump was getting impeached that they didn't pay attention or they looked away from what was actually being said during his impeachment hearings. And the quote you mentioned by Schiff, the United States aids Ukraine and her people so that we can fight Russia over there and we don't have to fight Russia here. The United States aids Ukraine and her people so that they can fight Russia over there and we don't have to fight Russia here.
1: Mm. Yeah, that is an extraordinary statement. Uh, Schiff, of course, has a track record of, uh, you know, obviously wild talk. I'm not quite sure where he's coming from. Um, And uh, both on this and, of course, he's been he was one of the major peddlers of the Russiagate issue. And, of course, the two are connected. And it's a vision of the world, which is dark, which is ultimately completely um disconnected from reality from the genuine concerns of moscow as if they just simply don't exist that russia's out there to destroy and to subvert uh, and to undermine western democracy uh, and achieve indeed instability there's absolutely no evidence for that being a fundamental policy obviously uh all security services do a lot of things in in the dark, but uh, as a state national strategy, that's not where Moscow is at. And therefore, uh, I think that, uh, you know, as you say, that's one reason why there were some people sympathetic to Trump in Moscow, not everyone. So that's been exaggerated. When Trump said the right thing from this perspective, that it makes sense to get on with Russia. And of course, he was demonized for that statement. He was then blocked in achieving that. And we are where we are today, as McFall and I think anybody who is sensibly looking at the situation today in a more parlous position than any since 1945. In a sense, we're talking about a a slow-burning Cuban missile crisis.
0: So let me just ask you to talk more about this crisis in particular and how we got here. For people who are not familiar with the circumstances around the Maidan coup in 2014 in Ukraine, the way it's portrayed in the US is that there was a democratic revolution that ousted a pro-Russian president uh, Yanukovych. Russia reacted uh, with aggression by seizing Crimea and essentially helping spark a proxy war in the Donbass, in the east of Ukraine. Can you, uh, respond to that narrative and, and just explain for people who aren't familiar with how this conflict started back in 2014? What really happened?
1: Well, the, the the fuse, if you like, was lit by the uh, plan to sign an association agreement with the European Union, which, of course, was also expanding. This association agreement was due to be signed in November 2013. And while, of course, in my view, it's very sensible for Ukraine to have close relations with the EU, why not, you may say, uh, but there were also security issues involved there. Uh, when Yanukovych saw this in November, he decided to put the signing on pause, uh, and then we had uh, the Maidan occupation, which lasted from November
0: all the way through to February. These are the protests in Maidan Square.
1: The Maidan, the protest initially against the postponement of the signing of the EU, the European Union Association Agreement, and then it became a popular revolution uh, supported and endorsed by uh, Victoria Newland and many other Western uh, leaders, um, which in the end, turned out to be a violent confrontation on the Maidan, the central, uh, independence, independence square in the center of Kiev. The thing about the Maidan, um, events, you mentioned the word coup. It was a coup, but it was other things as well. It was, a, there were genuine attempts, um, to achieve a, some sort of democratic breakthrough. So it was, there were elements of this revolution of dignity. But, uh, in the end, this, the more the, the civic side of it was overtaken in fact defeated on the maidan so there were two conflicts there was a there was a conflict within the insurgency and there was one of course against uh, the government of yanukovych and of course we actually had a deal with the european union the european collection of foreign ministers on the 21st of february 2014 had a deal uh, and then so uh, there was the shooting in the square that day which came Much of it came from the insurgency itself.
0: But it was blamed on Yanukovych.
1: It was not by Yanukovych and not his forces, the Birkut. It was from the militants on the Maidan who shot demonstrators in the back. And we have a lot of evidence of this. And so this is why we can talk. And it's legitimate to talk of a coup. A deal was signed and agreed, but then the Maidan rejected it. But by then, Yanukovych had stood down his forces. He found himself defenseless. Hence, the next day, he went to Kharkov and finally fled the country. And we had a very powerful neo-nationalist movement, government come to power illegally in all sorts of ways. But in the circumstances, you may say, OK, they had no choice. And this neo-nationalist government was quite clearly intent on uh, revising the agreement, for, uh, above all, with the Sevastopol naval base in the Crimea, which is the home of the Russian Black Sea fleet. Now, people tell me that they'd never seen Putin more angry uh, after the, these events when Yanukovych. When you say pro-Russian, by the way, this is this term pro-Russian is almost meaningless. It's trotted out as if this delegitimizes him. He was the legally elected leader. Of Ukraine. And he had uh, about a year left on his term. Elections were due to come up. Uh, They uh, agreed to pre term earlier elections. There was a legal way out, instead of which uh, we had this effective forced change of power, um, which would also not just perhaps, uh, you know, was not particularly democratic, it also would have changed the geopolitical balance in the region. And the idea. That US forces would take over the Sevastopol naval base is what it was all about. Initially, when it came to Crimea, it wasn't about anything else other than, you know, an absolutely clear and present danger that Sevastopol would fall, would be, that the Russian forces would be expelled from that and that US forces, not NATO, but US forces would take it over. And that would have represented the biggest defeat military geopolitical defeat of russia in the last thousand years it's so big that issue and the west simply does not recognize that moscow has been fighting you know on the it doesn't have two major oceans to defend itself has no mountains to defend itself no major rivers it's set on a vast north eurasian plain with no defensible borders and a constant sense of threat from the west from nato considers itself so benign so good so democratic and yet it simply uh cannot even uh, exercise its democratic uh, rights but it's bound up with its geopolitical jostling for advantage all the time since 1991 and of course today russia has had enough it had enough in 2014 and that's why putin talks about red lines this doesn't mean endorsing the russian or the moscow position it simply means taking a sober, balanced view of where we are today, in which we can understand that we're in a security dilemma of the most intense form. And therefore, we it behooves us all to try to find a way out.
0: What do you think happened to President Zelensky of Ukraine? If I recall his campaign correctly, he campaigned on a platform of making peace with Russia. Uh, you know, as I quoted Bill Taylor earlier, you know, warning Zelensky against that. Do you think Zelensky caved to pressure from the U.S.? Or was he ever sincere about following through on his campaign platform of peace? What what happened with him?
1: I think he was sincere. If you remember, there was a meeting of the uh, in the Normandy format. Those are the endorsers of the Minsk uh, um, protocols for peace. In this was in December 2019 in France, where Putin attended, Zelensky attended together with President Macron and with uh, Angela Merkel from Germany. Uh, And it was quite clear that, uh, you know, he was intent on achieving something. You know, there was a talk at that stage of a Steinmeier formula, which was a way of implementing a peace deal. But he went home after this meeting and, of course, Uh, Already, the Maidan was once again being blockaded by the militants, and his government became hostage to the militants. And uh, then since then, of course, his position has much weakened and he's playing, as so many Ukrainian leaders do, the hyper-nationalist card. And so, yes, he was sincere, but you could argue that ultimately he turned out to be a weak leader, an ineffective leader, and one who cannot make the political weather, and became hostage to extremist forces. Um, so uh, then, you know, he's now calling, and he has been for the last few months, for another meeting of, in the Normandy format with Putin. But the Russians are saying, look, you need to have something substantive to talk about. It's no good talking and trying to find a pathway to peace, only to find it being blocked by the militants in Ukraine uh so uh the the impasse is complete, and of course, since then he has been the most violent in calling for the militarization of the conflict, more and more weapons to be piled in and uh, uh which is also you know like throwing flame um, more and more tinder onto a burning bonfire uh and the west of course, is piling in uh more and more offensive arms. The British of course, signed a naval deal training uh i mean this is it cannot be. Considered more dangerous. While Russia did go to that meeting in uh, in, in Normandy format, looking for a solution, uh, clearly Russia cannot simply allow the uh, transfer of two and a half million people in the Donbass back to Ukraine without certain guarantees. Um, uh, meanwhile, in Ukraine, they cannot accept uh, autonomy for the Donbass as promised in the Minsk. Uh, a deal, so um, w- well. Um, I mean, the question then is: Where do we go from here? And uh, the, f- the the solution to Ukraine ultimately has to be in some sort of discussion, not even with European leaders anymore. And that's why Putin has called or is arguing for the need for a high-level summit with Biden to de-escalate in the first instance, and then perhaps find a pathway to some sort of peace, which includes, there's only one way that can be done, and that is to take NATO enlargement off the board and the demilitarization, I mean, I doesn't mean to say disarmament, but demilitarization of this conflict in Ukraine. And a lot of people would argue some sort of neutralization. Of course, that's highly controversial, but Uh, ultimately better to have something controversial and sensible than something sliding into war.
0: And taking NATO enlargement off the table, by the way, is not exactly a novel, uh, controversial idea. It was, of course, the pledge that the U.S. made to end the Cold War to the Soviet Union, a, a pledge that they, of course, have continuously violated in the decades since then. Zelensky, I should have mentioned, recently accused Russia of attempting to launch a coup against him. I'm wondering what you thought about that. And I also wanted to ask you to talk more about Minsk too, because that's supposedly the framework for peace that is supposed to end this thing, but it just hasn't been implemented. And I'm curious why it hasn't been successful.
1: Uh, As for the coup, it's uh, not the first time that Zelensky has uh, talked about this. And so uh, in the febrile atmosphere in Kiev, there's uh, these sort of ideas um, pop up from time to time. As for Minsk too, there's the fundamental thing one has to understand about it is that it was right from the start a formula for the Donbass to return to Ukrainian sovereignty. Public opinion polls at the time, talking about 2014 and into 2015, uh, quite clearly showed that the majority wanted to remain within the Ukrainian state, but with a degree of devolved a degree of autonomy. Uh, and that uh, is still the agenda for Minsk too. And the the issue is, is that uh, the militants certainly within Ukraine and indeed large swathes of the uh, Western Ukrainian population refused to grant autonomy to the Donbas. They would argue that this would allow Russia a permanent foothold uh, in Ukraine. It would be acting as a permanent uh, threat to block NATO enlargement, because, all, as you said, it all comes back to NATO enlargement, uh, which, you know, in substance, the actual fact of enlargement itself is not so much the issue, it's the way it was done, the way it was done without genuine inclusive security framework within which Russia could feel secure. So in other words, NATO could enlarge if we had, for example, as I've been calling for, is some sort of pan European security treaty, including a Security Council in which Russia is not just a participant and to be informed of decisions taken elsewhere, but an actual shaper of security. And that's never happened since 1991. Uh, and of course, it simply cannot be because even when, uh, as you say, it wasn't just uh, James Baker in February 20- 1990 who pledged no NATO enlargement, all a dozen a dozen Western leaders did so we have it chapter and verse. And the most the worst thing is today, is that a lot of these same leaders and Western commentators not only uh, deny that such a pledge was given, they deny even that there was even discussion of the issue. So it's absolutely a travesty of of what um, was going on earlier. And of course, this has been, I mean, I argue that between 1991 and 2014, we had a cold peace in which none of the fundamental questions of European security were resolved. And since 2014, we've then slid into a Cold War Two. And of course, today, this Cold War Two may well end up as a World War Three. Um, I mean, I don't think we are that close to it. It's a dangerous moment, definitely. Hence, McFall and colleagues are correct. But uh, it's 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 more dangerous, as I say, than anything we've seen since the Cuban Missile Crisis. And the worst thing is that we don't have leaders of the statue of a John F. Kennedy, or even, dare I say it, a Nikita Khrushchev.
0: You don't think Putin is hoping to dial this down? That I mean, do you think he wants a war with Ukraine?
1: No, absolutely not. It's, uh, there, there's, there's an, on any level, there is no sense to the war, because what would Russia achieve? Uh, it would be catastrophic. Absolutely not. The whole point of the uh, military forces are preemptive to stop the Ukrainians uh, being adventuristic. And of course, the, as you, as we've touched on, Zelensky seems to be becoming more and more erratic over the last uh, few months, if not a couple of years. So uh, the idea was to preempt it. This is why there was the mobilization in the springtime, uh, in particular, because Ukraine is being armed and not just uh, Western arms, but also Turkey has provided the Beiratka. B2, B 2 drones, which were so effective in the Azerbaijani-Armenian uh, war in uh, the autumn of 2020, when Armenia lost the territories or Azerbaijan regained its lost territories from the first Nagorno-Karabakh war in the early 1990s. And these drones have now been used in the Donbass and they are, I'm sure um, people are saying in Kiev, a game changer. So it may lead them on to some sort of adventurism, which would lead to conflict. No, so uh, the move is defensive um, and and just to stop as it were And in a sense, we should welcome the Russian mobilization because it dampens down perhaps the hotheads in Kiev who may wish to make a quick dash to do what the Azerbaijanis did in 2020. And indeed the Croats way back over Slavonia back in the early 1990s in the former Yugoslavia.
0: How big is the neo-Nazi fascist component of the Ukrainian armed forces?
1: Well, Dmitry Yarosh, uh, the leader of the right sector, has now become an advisor to the military. And so it's worse than that, is that we see the, let's not perhaps use the word uh, fascist or Nazi, there's certainly plenty of those plenty of those. Uh, when I was there in the Maidan, just after the um, overthrow of Yanukovych, a huge portrait of uh, Bandera, Stepan Bandera, the leader of the, uh, well, n- nationalist extreme uh, ne- neo-fascist forces in Ukraine uh, during the Second World War. So that is there. But that is that, in a sense, isn't the key point. What we do have, though, is a very powerful uh, movement, which I call a neo-nationalist. It's neo-nationalist because that model of Ukrainian state building is exclusive. It's na- neo. And why I add the neo to this nationalist is because it has a high degree of civic inclusivity to it. That it's not. Uh, it's not fascist. It's. Uh, it's something perhaps. It's more insidious and in this context uh, perhaps even more dangerous because uh, it's a very narrow vision of what a modern Ukrainian state should look like. And that vision excludes the Russophone population as Russophones. Of course, they're included if they have to give up um, an element of their language and so on. As we've seen since the Maidan coup, let's call it that, 2014, the Russian language, film, uh, the uh, education, everything has been pushed back. My view is that the 1996 Ukrainian constitution which made the ukrainian language the only state language was a fundamental mistake uh, many people who argue well you can understand that they haven't had statehood uh, that you know this is a they're bending the stick too far the other way uh, i don't accept those arguments i can understand them but it was a type of statehood which we've seen in estonia which we've seen in latvia which excludes a part of its population i'm not saying that this part of the population is deprived of their uh, human rights they're not but they're deprived of an element well mostly not but they're deprived of an element of their civic identity that uh therefore federalization and some sort of uh, consociationalism there's a whole stack of methods in which a modern state can be built yet these three states have built their states on exclusivity On a distorted vision of history, which they then deploy against Russia today, which ultimately makes a peace deal or peace and security and dialogue uh, and the free friendship of peoples almost impossible. It fosters hatred. And this is one of the things which I find particularly upsetting about Western leaders and, in fact, European Union leaders is just how weak, almost non-existent, their condemnation of what is flouting of fundamental p- principles of the European peace order as it developed after 1945.
0: So let's talk about your new book, Deception, Russia Gate, and the New Cold War. There is an endless stack of books about Russia Gate that have promoted the underlying narrative of a sweeping Russian interference campaign and Trump campaign collusion with it. You're in a very small <laughs> stack of books, probably less than a dozen, that has taken a critical look at Russiagate. And I hope personally to join you in that stack of books one day. Um, What was it it like for you as a scholar of Russia, observing just how consumed U.S. politics got with this frenzied, fear-mongering picture of Russia for more than four years, this idea that Russia was manipulating U.S. democracy through its email hackers and social media bots, and just how insane it got with presidents, with allegations that the president was an asset of the Russian government.
1: Yes, it was ultimately so bizarre. And this is what led me uh, to decide to do this book. This was uh, watched it throughout 2016 uh, and then uh, into 2017, the way that the whole allegations stymied attempts. Because if you recall that two times in the first half of 2017, once Trump was in the White House, Russia sent messages to the uh, White House saying, let's talk, let's uh, establish a peace deal of the sort we were talking about a few minutes ago, which may well have avoided this conflict or found a way out of the conflict in Ukraine. And of course, uh, they, the State Department and these these were um brusquely rejected in that frenzy of allegations that somehow or other Trump was a Siberian or Manchurian candidate working on behalf of moscow uh, and the, 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 the there's so there's two things there's the domestic u s angle to it which sh- shows the signs uh, which has only got worse since then of such intense polarization of such intense distrust. And in which almost all sides were willing to trample on facts, on the evidence, and make assertions which were um, in a sort of a permanent echo chamber where they secret Services, the intelligence services, put something into the media, to the Washington Post or some other newspaper, New York Times, which have been in the vanguard of the Russia Gate allegations. Which then becomes amplified by a think tanker, which then goes back to the security services. Look, there's uh, we we have to establish a counterintelligence investigation. So look, um, the 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 state, the patrie is, is in danger, is in danger, and so that's the domestic side, and it shows a degradation of the public sphere above all of classic principles of journalism, where you need at least two pieces of evidence before you publish, et cetera. All of that went out of the window. And of course, the second thing, and they fed on each other, was this dynamic towards um, international conflict, this new Cold War. And so it wasn't an accident that the main perpetrator was allegedly Russia because that had now become almost a standard enemy, the demon who is trying to subvert US democracy. So these two elements, that is the geopolitical situation on the one side and inside the United States, the degradation of democracy and the distortion of the public sphere, which then get, um, fed on each other. And of course, they're still feeding on each other. We're not. You know, so Russiagate, is still a legacy. People um, talk about the endless, you know, Russian subversion and intervention when, uh, you know, clearly we are locked in a cold war. There is disinformation going on. There is misinformation. There's mutual propaganda going on, Um, but it all, uh, you know, in the sense that we're in a bundle now in which my hope was with this book that let's get the facts right. And I must say uh, in all of this, um, that in, you know, and, and amidst all of this this frenzy, uh, as you say, this insanity, uh, there have been sane voices uh, in all of this. Your work has been outstanding. Matt Taibbi, Ray McGovern, um, Jack Matlock, the, the penultimate U.S. ambassador to, to Russia, and a few others have been, as it were, beacons to show. And I also say this, that The United States is such a complex ecosystem that there are people out there still fighting for balance, for, you know, genuine evidence-based journalism. Uh, And so that gives a little scope for optimism.
0: What I find amazing among many things is that even if everything that Russia was accused of were true, which I don't personally think they are based on the evidence, I don't think Russia launched this sweeping interference campaign, and I don't think Russia stole the emails. But... You know, I can't prove that for sure. We still have to see more evidence. But regardless, even if all of it were true, every, everything Russia was accused of, of true, the the way it was described is if it was this foreign intervention akin to Pearl Harbor and 9-11. I mean, literally, people like Hillary Clinton and top intelligence officials were equating this to 9-11 or Pearl Harbor. That's the part that I found very dangerous about all this, because as you say, and this continued into, you know, the, the sequel to Russia Gate, the impeachment over Ukraine, Ukraine Gate. The way Russia was described is that it was this, um, you know, uh, irrational, domineering enemy that sought to destroy American democracy. I mean, that was the rhetoric we heard constantly. Vladimir Putin could care less about delivering health care for the people of Russia for building infrastructure in Russia. Vladimir Putin, as many people in this chamber know well, because I've worked with some of you on this, wakes up every morning and goes to bed every night trying to figure out how to destroy American democracy. And he has organized the infrastructure of his government around that effort. And he was legitimized, not from you know, right-wingers, the traditional domain of you know, Cold War chauvinism, but across the liberal spectrum too, in ways that certainly I don't think liberals had said before, at least in my lifetime.
1: Absolutely. This was one of the most disturbing things that the the Democratic Party, uh, and we mentioned Adam Schiff uh, earlier, uh, was in a vanguard of all of this, and one could say make it worse, that it appears, and the John Durham investigations seem to confirm this, and it's in my book, uh, The Chapter and Verse, that in a sense, the whole Russiagate thing was inspired by the Clinton camp, the Clinton campaign, quite explicitly in conjunction with the security services I won't name names, but uh you know c i a and others um were involved right from the start in a campaign which was deliberately designed to implicate Russia in what would you know, it, I mean, if, if it was true, would it genuinely have been a, uh, you know, a frightening intrusion into the domestic affairs? Because no country likes its internal affairs to be, uh, the subject of external, um, manipulation. But as you say, the fact, you know, the, the worst thing in, in all of this is that at every level, at, at every stage in this chain, all the way back to the, uh, alleged hacking, of the Democratic National Committee emails, then the way they got to WikiLeaks, uh, and then um, the, um, the way that they, knew they were mobilized by the Clinton camp. And of course, uh, behind it all, we have people working. This is Fusion GPS and the Steel dossier, which was dripping information into the public sphere of a monumental intervention, which uh, was then Uh, exacerbated by the Clinton campaign. But she, of course, again, the two things come together because she had form. And uh, in her books before the election, she showed a visceral, visceral uh, detestation of Putin, which was very strange. It was a a classic demonization. And i just give one example uh, of her, her memoirs as her time as Secretary of State she says in this book that putin hates women now again it's one of those statements which you know a liberal in new york may endorse and say oh he's a bit macho yes he is and he certainly you won't find uh, vladimir putin doing the washing up he's an old traditional old-fashioned soviet style russian male Uh, but in terms of hating women nonsense they send the the governor of the Central Bank of Russia today is uh, Alvera Nabiulina, uh, there's Golikova as a Minister of uh, Social Welfare. You know, there's a whole stack of ministers in the Russian government and in high positions, the uh, well, I won't go through the whole list, in which Putin treats with deepest respect. And in fact, he has extended uh, Nabiulina's term at the CBR, the Bank of Russia, uh, for a second term and has always uh, worked well with her. So, you know, this idea is just so bizarre. But this is, again, if you like, the cultural framework for the two things we're talking about the gate within the United States and then its external geopolitical context is the third one, which is a cultural one and this growing cultural gulf in the type of liberal progressivism as it has taken shape in the United States. Much of it we can endorse, much of it is actually very positive and we can endorse, but the shape and the frame in which it is then couched becomes then a part of an aggressive culture war which is fought as we know bitterly within the United States. And this is now being projected externally. And of course, Russia as always seems to fall into the trap and it itself of course, is enacting um, rather um, backward looking uh, legislation which only makes things worse. And so we're into this uh, spiral of distrust and uh, but the cultural element is quite important I think in all of this.
0: Let me ask you finally, and this is a bit of speculation because it's hard to know exactly what people's motives were. But in terms of the driving factors behind Russiagate, so for the Clinton campaign, it's pretty easy. They uh, were facing this scandal over Hillary Clinton's email server. They needed something to distract from that. Hillary Clinton, as you said, already had this visceral dislike for Russia and Putin. So coming up with this conspiracy theory that Trump was a Russian asset, for, from their point of view, was a good strategy. Uh and but from the point of view of the national security state and connecting this back to how we began this discussion about places like ukraine so trump on the campaign trail was talking about uh not spending all this money on nato and he was criticizing nato and he was criticizing u.s interventionism in libya and syria and so i'm just wondering from your reading of this whether you think that the prospect of Trump reversing policies or at least rhetorically criticizing policies when it comes to the deep U.S. involvement in Ukraine, you know, launching the coup there, the deep U.S. involvement in the dirty war in Syria, the catastrophic foreign intervention, a U.S. led intervention in Libya. To what extent that motivated national security state actors in the U.S. who didn't like what Trump was saying? And that's. That's separated from what Trump was actually willing to do, because I personally don't think he was ever going to seriously change U.S. policy. But certain, certainly rhetorically, he was saying things that no presidential candidate of that stature had been saying before.
1: Yeah. Just, uh, just one thing uh, in terms of the motivation of Hillary Clinton, uh, what the DNC... Uh, emails, however they got into the public domain, um, what they showed was the manipulation within the DNC of the campaign of one of the Democratic contenders, Bernie Sanders, who astonishingly won 23 primaries in 2016. And of course, the country was ripe for change. It wanted change. Uh, And Sanders offered change. Trump offered change. And of course, Clinton as a campaigner was a disaster because she was the representation precisely of all that was uh, at at fault, which is... I don't want to use the term the deep state, but I will say that. And uh, in the book, uh, I argue and I use this model. Of uh, Glennie, Glennon talks about this sort the double state you have on the one side, the Madisonian state, and that is the uh, you know the courts, the uh, political ele- elections and parties and so on. Uh, on the other side, you have the Trumanite state. You have this security state which developed. Uh, in the first Cold War, and it was never dismantled at the end of the Cold War in 1991. And though it, you know, it tried to, in, in its NATO form, it went out of, uh, out of region. It went to all sorts of places to be active. But you do have this huge, what you remember that communist uh, Eisenhower in his farewell address talked about a military industrial complex. Yes. And now we're talking about military, industrial media, intelligence complex, and of course, fed in part by the British intelligence services, which are very deeply implicated in all of Russiagate. So uh, when Trump emerges as a threat to all of this, uh, in, and of course, to the traditional alliance system, as you say, I agree with you, I don't think there was much prospect of him actually doing all that much positive in that framework. But the thing about Trump is that he, he asked the right questions. Even earlier, he said, what are we doing in Afghanistan? What, what is our end game? How are we going to get there? And, and all the other questions. What is NATO for? Because you don't have to be a Trumpist to argue that NATO is unique in world history as a major military alliance, which continues 30 years after the reason for its foundation has gone, that is to fight the Cold War with the Soviet Union, which no longer existed. So what we actually have is the institutions and the ideology of Cold War one maintained entirely and of course, without the restraint of the Soviet Union, it went. They went. You could argue berserk. Uh, I don't think they went quite so berserk, but they certainly were unlimited in their ambition. Liberal internationalism, which was very fine and positive, if you like, until '91, became liberal hegemony, and that's a very different beast entirely, because it has no room for anyone else. It doesn't have any room for Russia. It doesn't have any room for China. It has it's an ideology of dominance, of permanent dominance, permanent, effectively, militarization. People don't forget also that Obama also was uh, you know, was talking about and that's why he got the peace prize, to try to ramp this down. Of course, again he failed. So it wasn't just Trump not delivering on his promises. Obama signally failed. And of course he won a peace prize because of his talk about nuclear. Issues and of course he's uh, he launched a modernization of U.S. N- nuclear forces, uh, which is going to cost at least a trillion, if yeah. not more. Yeah. So it's a what very my, dangerous situation.
0: One of my favorite quotes about NATO comes from you, Richard Sakwa, and then we'll end. You wrote, "There's a fateful geographical paradox. NATO exists to manage the risks created by its existence."
1: Absolutely. I stick to that. Uh, In other words, uh, NATO and the whole Atlantic Alliance system, uh, because it doesn't it's exclusive. It's uh, I don't use the word. um, It's a sort of hermetic. It's closed. And therefore, you can only join it if you accept the terms and you become a subordinate. Now, Moscow would never become a subordinate. Beijing will never become a subordinate. Japan, of course, uh, was uh, defeated in a war. So, yes, we're now seeing a system, a Cold War Two feeds on itself. And therefore, it's so hard to understand the logic of this conflict. And I'm afraid, most sadly, because it becomes it's so amorphous, it's very hard to think of a way out of this conflict.
0: Since you mentioned Beijing, let me just ask you because I forgot. I think it's important. It seems now as if uh, Russia and China are growing increasingly uh, close. There's talk of an alliance. Is there going to be a formal Russia-China alliance that, uh, of the kind that has not happened in, uh, ever?
1: Uh, no, if you'd asked me this even a couple of weeks ago, uh, I would have said no, that hmm. I've always used the word an alignment. But uh, in recent times, uh, there's now, you know, even some senior Chinese commentators have floated the idea of some sort of a military pact. Both Russia and China eschew the language of block politics, of alliances. That's for the West. Uh, they would uh, work together. However, they both feel themselves under threat. And of course, two powers under threat uh, will um, work closer together. The idea of Biden that he could, as it were, stabilize relations with Russia, which was sensible, but in order to focus on China and perhaps to have a wedge between Moscow and Beijing, that is not going to work. So the Russian-Chinese alignment is for the long term.
0: All right, Richard Sakwa, professor of Russian and European politics at the University of Kent. His books include Frontline Ukraine Crisis in the Borderlands and his latest, Deception: Russia Gate and the New Cold War. Richard Sakwa, thank you very much.
1: Thank you.